0: Last Sunday morning in my Christian ed class, I told them what I was planning on doing this morning. I sound worse than I feel. Like, my throat isn't sore. It's just, you know those times when it's got no oomph? So just ignore it. You know what I mean? Just ignore it. I mean, who cares anyway? And I said to the class, here's what I'm going to do next Sunday morning. I said this last week. And then I said, How many of you think I'm crazy for doing this? And I thought just out of politeness, there wouldn't be any people who who said, yes, Pastor Don, that's just insane. And there were some who used to come to my class and and who just said, boy, I'm doing it. What we're going to do this morning is a little bit different. Um... For the first 20 minutes, it's going to be it's going to be class Cedar View. And then for the last part, it'll be sermon Cedar View. There's just something I want to I want to talk about that that I think is important if I'm able to make you see the importance of it. So buckle up. And, and uh, get ready to th- think through something to do with this text. What we're studying, what we normally do is we look at what these verses say, alright? That's, that's good teaching, I think. Here's what these verses say. What we're doing this morning is, before we do that, we're, we're backing up. In the first 20 minutes or so, we're looking at why these verses matter how we got these verses because if you don't get that right what they say isn't all that important if 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 the writers were writing things speaking from their own minds and hearts and getting some things right and getting some things wrong then there's nothing urgent in learning what the verses teach why is what the verses teach important that's what we're going to be doing for the first little while this morning. And you might not think that's called into question, but it is. Increasingly so in the evangelical church. So this is Hebrews part 42, but the long title is, If God is always nothing but loving towards sinners, why is it a fearful thing to fall into his hands? The text is Hebrews 10, 28 to 31. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You can read about that in the book of Deuteronomy. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the spirit of grace. Three things. For we know him who said, quote, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, quote, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, of a living God fall into the hands of the living God let's pray thank you first of all for the reminder that even as we worship this morning it's it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we make the mistake of thinking that our breath is just for breathing Animals breathe. Our breath is for praising and glorifying. And now we come to your word and want to express the same reverence for truth that we express with our hearts and with our mouths in praise. And so come among us and help with this important subject, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know I kind of have to apologize for the way I'm opening up this morning's teaching. There's something here that is really important to me, and I think to the future of the church. So I just have to do a lead-in into this text. We'll get to the words of the text. If I'm a bit longer this morning, don't panic. The service won't go longer. If I have to, I'll just kind of you know, wrap up the sermon. We'll sing a song and, and, and be done. We'll do prayer and everything tonight. We'll just wait and see how that kind of unpacks. So, classroom seat of you for the first 20 minutes. I'm just reading Gregory Boyd's new book, Cross Vision. And on the back of the cover, you have the usual names giving their praise for the book. Brian Zahn, Brian McLaren, Bruxy Cavey, and Rachel Held Evans, who is a, uh, I don't know if you've read any of her stuff. She's a strong uh, female voice supporting... Same-sex marriage in the church. Boyd's book is uh, the latest in a string of books, which is why I wanted to take a minute and deal with this. This is a trend that's developing now. It's a string of books positing the same basic two or three arguments in the anti-wrath of God movement. The idea being that all of the instances in the Old Testament that seem to reveal God acting violently against sin. That those are just really the early stages of what these contemporary writers define as progressive revelation. Which is a good term, progressive revelation. We believe in that, but not like this. What they mean by that term is that Moses and David and a host of others thought that God was commanding all these bloody sacrifices and all these vengeful wars. But it was all just their own mistaken notions that they attributed to God. And so you'll see the Lord said and the Lord commanded, but God never did. This is what they've got going on in their minds. And in fact, what was happening was the thinking of these Old Testament writers was, well, it was clouded, prejudiced by the practices of violent religious culture all around them. These other people had their gods, and that's what their gods were doing, and their gods were commanding. And so as a result, Moses and David and all the prophets, they just, they just attributed the same kind of actions to their god as well. And God, well, he just allowed them to do that because one day uh, Jesus would come into the world and all these cultural blind spots would be clarified and exposed in the person, the loving, gracious, forgiving person of Jesus Christ. So we would finally see what God was really like instead of all these mistaken Old Testament notions. So with all these contemporary writers, this, this cultural editing of the Bible, here's the thing. With all of them, it in no way diminishes their use of very orthodox terms. This is surprising to me. They still speak of their acceptance of the divine inspiration of the scriptures. They call it God's sacred word. The only one of that list that I've, I've actually heard denying inerrancy would be Bruxy Cavey. I, but I, I don't think the other ones hold to it either. But they would all say, well, they believe the Bible to be God's inspired word. And, and the way they do this is by changing the definition of the terms. That's what I want to talk about. And that's why I said it's kind of classroom seat of view, just for a few minutes. See, once you switch the meaning of words, you can do anything you want. If I use a word and you use a word and we think we're talking about the same thing, but we're not talking about the same thing, then neither one of us is going to get very far. Agreed? So the key point, the key term in understanding this whole issue, this whole issue comes down to one key term, and it's that idea of progressive revelation. In itself, it's not a bad term. And in uh, historical, evangelical, reformed, Protestant thought, the term progressive revelation means this. It means the scriptures move from lesser details of redemption in Christ to greater detail of redemption in Christ. Think of it this way. You got a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle. If you're one of those crazy people that does those things, you got a box. And there's a thousand pieces, and it's a lighthouse on an island in the middle of the ocean. And you you open up the box and you take all the pieces out and you start putting them together. And you, these two pieces fit together, and maybe you start at the borders. And these is a corner, here's a corner piece and you put those together. Is that how you do it? By the way, something like that. And as you put the pieces together, you start to see more and more of the picture the more pieces you include. The first few pieces you don't know what you're doing. Then after a while, you you've got half of the lighthouse done and you see a red piece and you know the red is the only thing in the picture, it's the lighthouse. You know, oh that goes. That's over here somewhere. Fewer pieces, you don't have much of the picture. As you get more and more pieces, the picture becomes more and more clear. That's progressive revelation. But, and here's the important point. Progressive revelation has always held that all of the pieces are God-given pieces. That's important. All of the pieces are God-given pieces. The doctrine of progressive revelation has never held until recently with these writers. It's never held that the early ideas in the Old Testament were man-generated. And the later revelation clarified all the mistakes. In other words... Progressive revelation doesn't move from less true to more true. It doesn't move from inaccurate to accurate. It never moves from mistaken to correct. Just like all the pieces of the puzzle are perfectly fine, right? There's nothing wrong with the pieces. It's just that you need more and more of them before you start to see the picture. That's the doctrine of progressive revelation. But these contemporary writers hold a totally different view. A totally different view of progressive revelation while they continue to use the same term. And it fools people. And that's what bugs me. You don't have to be orthodox. But don't pretend to be orthodox. It's a totally different view of the Bible. These writers hold to the idea that the early writers of Scripture hadn't yet evolved... ...out of their mistaken views of their own culture. In other words, what they thought, and more important for us, what they wrote... They thought they were getting it from God, but they were actually just getting it from their own cultural conditioning and understanding. And they just attributed the ideas to God. Are you all following me so far? Okay. So, for these writers, progressive revelation means moving from more culturally distorted thinking to hopefully less culturally distorted thinking. And for our purposes, the implication of this is progressive revelation means moving from a a very culturally polluted text to a more culturally accurate text in the back of your Bible. I'm not making that up. In his book, Greg Boyd, in his new book, he says that Jesus came to teach us not to trust the writings of Moses. I thought, I didn't read that right. Yeah. Why? You have to understand. Moses thought he was giving you God's revelation. But but he was just all mixed up because of, you know, religion was very primitive. And he was seeing what the surrounding nations were doing with their God. So he just assumed that his God was like that. It's a bad road to be on. And I want to tell you why, and you need to just, we're getting there. Just stick with me for a minute now. It's a bad road to be on. Because it's a, it's a no-win hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is just the, the interpretation of the text, how we interpret the Bible. It's a no-win. And here's why. See, there are scads of liberal scholars today who do the exact same thing to the New Testament message of Jesus that Boyd and Zond and McLaren do to the Old Testament prophets' view of God. Like, there's no stopping point with this. People who do study in theology, you'll know what I'm talking about. There have always been heavyweight liberal scholars, Rudolf Boltman who said the entire New Testament needed to be cleansed from the supernatural miracles and just boiled down to the teaching. Because, because the miracles, get this, were, were uh, an addition from the cultural mindset of the people of Jesus' day. So you see what he's doing? He's doing exactly what, what Brian Zahn and McLaren, these guys, are doing with the Old Testament. The revelation from God that was just culturally polluted from the pagan nations around them. Well, there are all sorts of writers who do the same thing with the New Testament. Where do you quit with this? That includes, by the way, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Doesn't matter whether it happened or not. As long as they thought it happened. It was motivating for them. My point is this. There really is no safe place to draw the line. Once you start down this road, there's no safe place to draw the line as to which parts of the Bible you're going to rely on and which parts aren't safe to believe. Boyd, McLaren, Zahn, and others, they're just deciding for now that they endorse what they read about Jesus, but a lot of others don't. I still remember in my theological training when I had to review an old little book entitled Protestant Biblical Interpretation by Bernard Ram. This is the classroom part still. Don't panic. His words have become more penetrating to me lately than they ever were when I first studied them and I found them boring sitting in the library. I pulled it off the shelf, and I noticed some things that I had underlined. And I underlined them in 1974. Yeah. Listen to this quote, and then I have part of it that I'm going to try and put on the screen. This is Bernard Ram in his book. It is necessary to declare our rejection... ...of the liberals' use of the idea of accommodation. Accommodation means what Moses and David and the Old Testament prophets were doing. They, were, they, they accommodated their message from the culture around them. See, that, that's what he's talking about. To liberalism, accommodation was the evisceration of the doctrinal content of the Bible. Listen, by explaining doctrinal passages... As accommodations to the thought patterns of the times of biblical writers. Do you, see, do you see the connection there? This same sort of error is true to the nth degree in Boltman's theory of the mythology of the New Testament. Now, I want you to see the next part of Ram's quote. I hope I can show you this and make it work. Ta-da! Okay. by progressive revelation, that's the term we're, we're considering, is not, not meant that the biblical revelation is a process of evolution in the cultural religious sphere. You see what he's saying? He's talking about this issue exactly. This idea of the evolution of religions in the scriptures was a means of denying the real revelatory content of Scripture and undermining the uniqueness of biblical revelation. By progressive revelation, we mean that the Bible sets forth a movement from God, here's the important phrase, with the initiative coming from God and not from man. That last phrase is the important one with the initiative coming from God and not from man. And what I, what I need to make you see is that is the exact opposite of the way Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn and Brian McLaren, it's the exact opposite of the way they describe progressive revelation. They see these Old Testament writers telling us what they thought God was saying. But they say God wasn't saying anything of the kind. Moses and the prophets, they were speaking out of their own mind. The ideas and words started with them and what they thought. They were initiating a false idea, which they simply copied from the pagan culture around them. And that's what Ram says, that's all wrong. That's all wrong. Boyd, Zahn, McLaren... They have these Old Testament writers initiating their words from within their own cultural blindness. In other words, they are their ideas first. They speak first apart from God. And later on, God's going to clarify it and, and fix up their mistake. And as Ram insists, Revelation always initiates with God and comes into the culture from the outside. Please understand. I mean, we all know, certainly, Revelation speaks to the culture it initially enters. In other words, the Bible speaks of crucifixion. It doesn't talk about the electric chair, right? Because that's the culture into which the Revelation came. But it was God's revelation. God initiated it. God speaks into that culture from the outside. It wasn't concocted in the writer's mind In other words, think about the puzzle again. Progressive revelation means all the pieces of the puzzle are God-given pieces. All the pieces are as true as any of the other pieces. Even though the whole picture is gradual, progressive in coming into clarity. I need to ask your forgiveness for that, okay? That's a lengthy sidebar. I don't want this church deceived. I think a church has three responsibilities. Every church, every Christian has three assignments, and only three. We are to show the love of Jesus, which takes no, we, it takes no words at all to show the love of Jesus. You don't have to say a thing. He just show his love to people, all sorts of people. The church also has the job of proclaiming the gospel, which takes words, sentences, the nature of the Trinity, the purpose of the atonement. The third thing a church always has to do is defend the gospel because it's not going to be the last message we hear. Everybody's got other ideas. Defending is kind of what we're doing in that opening sidebar. Point number one. I know, I know. Just hang in. I want to show you now from this text and others what we were just talking about. Look how long that first point is. It is immediately obvious in this text, the one we're studying, that our New Testament writer... Considered the writing of Moses and the Old Testament prophets. Considered it the uncorrupted revelation from God himself. Hebrews ten twenty-eight to 30. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? So we're, we're talking punishment. This is New Testament. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? This is Jesus, right? Who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the spirit of grace, for we know him who said, this by the way is God, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Now, our writer deliberately quotes Moses' closing words to Israel. It's just before Joshua takes over leadership. And so he takes special note of verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, quote, I will repay. And again, quote, the Lord will judge his people. So those two quotes about God's vengeance and his judgment, they're taken directly from Moses' words in, well, it's Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I need you to see that our writer of Hebrews, he continues to do what he's always done with dozens of quotations from the Old Testament. He he cites all his Old Testament quotes as being spoken by God Himself. He says, For we know, we know him who said. Who's the sayer in those words? It's God. We, We know him who said. Those words. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He doesn't say Moses. It's interesting. We know him who said. Clearly Moses wasn't going to repay. Those were God's words. And, And the implication is, one doesn't really know the truth about God unless he knows God said this. So you don't bleach these words from your revelation of God. You include them. This was revelation from God. This was not just the angry words of Moses blowing up at the people. So there's absolutely nothing in our Hebrews text that places these Old Testament words on a lower level somehow. Truthfully, the New Testament consistently treats the Old Testament revelations of God's wrath and judgment. The New Testament consistently treats those revelations as this is what God is actually like and this is what God really does. You don't have to take my word for that. Here's a longer text. 2 Peter 2 1-6 to How does the New Testament view these Old Testament writers that, that uh, Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn and Brian McLaren, they say they were just mistaken. How does the New Testament view their writings? Here's the Apostle Peter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who secretly bring in destructive heresies. Even deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is from long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let me put up the next slide. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to gloomy chains of darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, he's going to tell us who that is, but preserved Noah, so now we know what he's talking about, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he, who's this? This is God, right? He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of, we know this story, Sodom and Gomorrah, to ashes, who's this? This is God. He condemned them to extinction, making them an example, an example of what? Of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Something important to remember when you read these words from the Apostle Peter. I will gladly risk repeating myself on this point. Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn and Brian McLaren and their writings are endorsed by Bruxy. He's had Brian Zahn speak in his church. These writers, they unite around the idea that what we see of God revealed in Jesus, it forces us to reject These mistaken Old Testament images of God. Okay? We finally see what God is really like in Jesus. And when you see that, you know that all of these Old Testament writers were simply wrong. That's that's their thesis. All of them. That's their thesis. So in other words, you must choose between the revelation of God in Christ and these violent stories from the Old Testament. Because you can't believe both. Then you stop, at least I do, then you stop and you think, wait a minute, these words that we just read, all those examples of judgment, they come from the apostle Peter. Surely Peter had a pretty good picture of what Jesus was like, don't you think? Surely Peter had seen the love and compassion of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus. Peter witnessed Jesus healing the lame, the blind. He saw Jesus feeding the hungry, reaching out to the poor, the marginalized. Peter was one of those ones who came to Jesus and said, oh, teach us to pray. And I'm laboring that because Brian Zahn never had lunch with Jesus. Greg Boyd never sat in the same fishing boat with Jesus. Brian McLaren and Bruxy, they never sat around the campfire on the beach and ate fish with Jesus. Peter did all those things for years. And this this is the same Peter who saw no reason whatsoever. Here's the point. This Peter saw no reason whatsoever to reject the accounts. He quotes them. Of God's wrath revealed against the ungodly in the, Old, in the Old Testament. Peter accepts them fully. He holds them as powerful, truth-teaching statements before the church of Jesus Christ. And Peter knew Jesus really well. And Peter didn't see anything inconsistent. What I'm saying here is, the Apostle Peter, who knew Jesus, intimately, he felt there was no inconsistency between the revelation of God in the Old Testament and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Truth be told, we know exactly how Peter, this Peter, who was intimately acquainted with the loving presence of Jesus, who experienced Jesus' forgiveness personally. We know how this Peter viewed all the writings of the Old Testament. Everybody needs to look up this text. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I hope I've made you see by now that is exactly... What Brian Zond and Greg Boyd and Brian McLaren, that's exactly what they say happens in the Old Testament. That these Old Testament prophets, it was, it was kind of their own spin on God and they were affected by the culture, the violent culture that they saw around them. So it was just their own private view. That's what they're saying. And Peter is saying that never happened that way. Do you see that in that text? No prophecy of Scripture. It's not just talking about prophetic in terms of predicting the future. It's talking about all the writings of the prophets. No prophecy, look at this, was ever produced by the will of man. That's exactly what those writers are saying. It's exactly what they're saying. Men spoke from God. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It, it, hit me, it hit me like a ton of bricks. All over again this week. I, I shared it with Renee. We were sitting in the family room. There, there's something burning in Peter's heart. Just look again and really think about those first few words. He says, knowing this first of all. You, you can't get anything else right. Until you know this first of all. Here's where you start. You don't start with all the doctrines and the teaching and the application. You don't start there. You start with how we got this text. Why do these words count? They don't if you listen to these modern writers. Stop yelling, Don. Nothing else works. Nothing else works in the whole Christian realm until you nail down first things first. I've told the story before. I never forgot it. I don't have time to tell it. So Peter is saying the number one thing we need to know. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And he means people didn't generate their own ideas when they wrote these words. People didn't speak out their thoughts just according to the customs of their culture. Boyd and Zond and McLaren, they just pat each other on the back with the cleverness with which they say it. But Peter will have none of it. Peter goes further and says, no prophecy was ever, not even once, not a line produced by the will of man. Peter says this is the number one truth. And if it ever starts to fall into neglect or decay, absolutely nothing else good can be produced in terms of authentic Christianity. Let's all just go home. And this is far from the number one truth with these writers. The Holy Spirit weeps. So the church can and must wholeheartedly accept what Peter said, and what Moses said, and what David said, and what Jesus said. None of their words require bleaching or cultural editing, and progressive revelation, properly understood, doesn't demand it either. Point number two. Rather than remove the doctrine of divine judgment against persistence in sin, progressive revelation intensifies it. I get that in Hebrews 10, 29 and 30. Look at these opening words. How much worse punishment? You see that word worse? How much worse punishment? So we're not, we're not removing punishment with the coming of the new covenant in Jesus. How much, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? So he's clearly talking about Jesus and the revelation we have of Jesus. Who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. This is not complicated logic, I'm just going to say it quickly. The idea in those verses, 29 and 30, is this. Willfully rejecting greater light and stronger grace... Willfully rejecting a more costly redemption. That's, the, that's Jesus on the cross and his shed blood. Willfully rejecting a more costly redemption reduces excuses for our rejection of the truth. In other words, the wickedness of my heart is more fully exposed in rejecting Jesus than any of the Israelites for disobeying one of the Ten Commandments. So how much worse punishment? The greater the love, the greater the mercy offered, the greater the price of redemption that I willfully just trample underfoot like a cigarette butt. Which do you think deserves worse punishment? That's what our writer is saying here. 3 When the hands of a loving God are fearful. Hebrews 10:31 Are y'all still with me? Okay. It's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The Bible, just to be clear, just consistently portrays God as gracious, kind, long suffering, merciful, and loving. While that's true, whenever, whenever it describes anyone falling into his hand or falling into his hands, it's just a fact that it's almost always a description of wrath or judgment, not a hug. Let me wrap this up with one of the best-known stories. When David arose in the morning, David has sinned, okay? In the census. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go go and say to David, thus says the Lord, there's going to be punishment. There's going to be punishment for David. Three options. Remember this story? Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it. I, this is not Satan. This is God. So, Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me david's thinking 14 let me put this up there i'm in great distress let us fall into the hand you see it that's the phrase we're studying let us fall into the hand of the lord for his mercy is great But let me not fall into the hand of man. So we know what David means now when he says falling into God's hand, right? And so the Lord, not Satan, sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Wow. Pastor Don, why are you... Why are you telling us all this stuff on a Sunday morning? It's already cold out. Like, do you seriously think this helps make any of us feel good as we sit here? Well, first of all, if I'm worth two cents to the Lord as a pastor at all, I'm not primarily out to make anyone just feel good. I'm out to help people know the truth of God's word. And I I would simply refer you, if that's what you're thinking right now, I'd just refer you to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, words from the Lord about prophets who make it their primary goal to tell people what they might like to hear. And I'm not into that kind of judgment. But secondly, and more importantly, I'm worried, I'm worried about the kind of gospel the church is starting to export to those outside of Christ. There's a strong aversion. It's growing. I wouldn't be doing this. A strong movement against any mention of divine wrath and judgment. It's not in any of our worship courses. And my problem with that is it marks a departure from the gospel as it's defined in the New Testament. I'm not asking you to take my word for that. Let me just show it to you. We're almost done. For when the Gentiles, Paul's writing, it's in the middle of a theological argument, but you'll see his point here. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, they, they weren't given the Ten Commandments. The Jews were given the Ten Commandments. That's what he's saying. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they've got conscience, God works in their hearts, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law like on tablets of stone. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts. They accuse or even excuse them. Listen. On the day when, according to my gospel. So Paul's talking about the gospel here. Though what he's about to mention, most people don't fit into the gospel. When according to my gospel... Say those two words. Gospel. Pastor Don, are you saying this idea of judgment, are you saying it's part of the gospel? No, I'm not. Paul is. On that day when according to my gospel this this is in my proclamation of the gospel, Paul says. When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men's hearts by Christ Jesus. By the way, that's all those guys say that's just love. God doesn't do anything wrathful in Jesus. Paul clearly states that this coming day of divine judgment, it's an important part of his gospel. We know from other texts that it actually did seem to motivate what Paul did for the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or for evil. Therefore, knowing the fear, not the love, knowing the fear of the Lord, we we persuade others. When I take the gospel, I'm thinking about judgment. I'm thinking about John saying the wrath of God abides on people. Paul says, I mull that over. Every time I go anywhere and proclaim the gospel, I'm trying to persuade people because they've all got these mixed up ideas about God's love and grace. And Paul says, I think about this. It's part of the gospel that I proclaim. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that the church is losing this gospel impulse. I'm afraid we think that Jesus is just coming to help people get through their struggles a little better with a little bit more peace of mind and feel good about themselves. And they're not going to embrace the cross because they don't see the need. Do we fear? Do we Fear leaving people with wrong ideas about God and judgment and redemption? Do we fear that we're going to leave them somehow unmoved, unpersuaded? This world needs more than love, sweet love. It needs deliverance from sin, it needs deliverance from divine judgment, it needs deliverance from a billion false ideas about how redemption can happen. God, help us to get it right. God help us never to forget it. And God help us not to be intimidated by a host of popular writers intimidated from proclaiming it.